Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie Easton. This, this is the Sunday Sunday. In today's episode, NASA launches its anti-asteroid spacecraft, we discover the science behind a good finger snap, and we get chatting to a scientist who believes your favourite seafood dinner deserves better treatment. But first, it was on this week in 1895, Swedish chemist Alfred Nobel established the Nobel Prize, a prize that to this day recognises people who have conferred the greatest benefit to humankind. Seven. Five. Four, three, two, one, and liftoff of the Falcon 9 and Dart. Late on Tuesday, a spacecraft was launched from California, carrying humanity's greatest hopes of being able to protect Earth from a catastrophic asteroid strike. Blasting off into space, NASA's DART mission will test whether it's possible to knock an asteroid off a collision course with the Earth. It's targeting a rock called Dimorphos that's 11 million kilometres away. The asteroid's not actually a threat to our planet, but it's good practice for when one actually is. Still, we'll have to wait until September next year to see if the mission hits its target. But what does it actually take to nudge an asteroid off course? Nancy Chabot, the coordination lead at the NASA and John Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, has all the details. In order to deflect it even a little bit, you have to be going pretty fast. And so it is going fast. It's going 15,000 miles per hour, right? But that means that like one hour ahead of time, it's 15,000 miles away from an object that's only 160 meters, less than two football fields, right? I mean, and so, and it's actually only in this last hour, even using this great telescope that we have on the spacecraft, um, that it can see as different points of light, Dimorphos from Didymos. Before that, in the images, it just looks like a single point of light. Dimorphos is about the size of the Great Pyramids, and the DART spacecraft is about the size of a small golf cart. So basically you're running a small golf cart into the Great Pyramids. Clearly not going to disrupt it or blow it up into a ton of little pieces, but you know, you might make a dent. The impact's only expected to change the asteroid's orbital speed by a fraction of a percent, but that will be enough for telescopes here on Earth to observe. And hopefully this data will help us prepare in case a deadly asteroid comes our way, and they could be out there. The good news is that asteroids that are a kilometer or larger, we found over 90% of that population, we're tracking those, none of those are a threat in the future. Um, but it's this in-between sort of population of a few hundred meters that really people are focused on for planetary defense as the highest priority. And that's because something like the size of DART's target, Dimorphos, if it was to hit the Earth, would cause regional devastation. It would be tens to hundreds of kilometers um, just wiped out, small, you know, if it was over an urban area, it could be very devastating. Um, and this population of a few hundreds of meters size object, we actually have found less than half of that population currently. Yeah, that's right. We only know of less than half of the deadly asteroids that exist. Luckily, we don't have any posing an imminent threat right now, but this mission will help us work out if we could deflect one in the future. 
If we can detect threats ahead of time and then send up a spacecraft to knock them just slightly out of orbit, that's enough to potentially protect our little blue planet. Women who are at a higher risk of miscarriage are to be offered a progesterone hormone drug by the NHS. According to new guidelines, women who experience early pregnancy bleeding and have had at least one miscarriage should be prescribed the drug. This comes from the health watchdog NICE and is based on University of Birmingham research suggesting the treatment could lead to 8,450 more births each year in the UK. Progesterone is a naturally occurring hormone that helps prepare the womb for the growing baby and the trial found the more miscarriages a woman had, the more effective progesterone was. Professor Siobhan Quemby from Tommy's National Centre for Miscarriage Research joined BBC Breakfast to explain how it works. So, so progesterone works on the placenta and helps the placenta grow. So the implications are that if you had some bleeding, there is a little bit of a problem in your placenta and the progesterone can rescue it. So for many, many years, we thought that, in fact, uh, these pregnancies weren't rescuable. And if you had bleeding in early pregnancy, either your pregnancy overcame it and you were fine or you miscarried and there was nothing that doctors could do. It's really great that now there is something that doctors can do, that we can give progesterone and rescue some of the pregnancies. This is really, really good news. While she's pleased with the updated guidelines, Professor Gillian Lang, Chief Exec of NICE, stressed that more research is needed. The research evidence is is clear that it's not it's not going to help everyone but it will help some women something else we've called for in the guideline is more research you know there really isn't enough research into the causes of miscarriage or effective treatment you know until until now there hasn't been anything that's been able to be offered to women so i'm really pleased that today we've got some some advice some help Still to come on the Sunday 7, the brighter side of melting glaciers and how exactly did Thanos snap his fingers? Whenever we hear about glaciers melting, it's always a little bit doom and gloom, isn't it? But who would have thought the climate crisis could have a silver lining? Whilst rising global temperatures are of concern for a whole myriad of reasons, a group of scientists are examining how the consequences of global warming could deliver a way to fight against its effects. Since glaciers melt, they uncover a wonder material that could capture carbon and increase crop yield. It's called glacial rock flour, an ultra-fine silt that was crushed and ground under the weight of massive ice sheets. Its nutrient-rich nanoparticles absorb and store carbon from the atmosphere and allows plants easy access to nutrients like potassium, calcium and silicon. When it's mixed with rainwater, the nutrients are released and a chemical reaction absorbs carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that then settles in the ocean as carbonate materials. Initial tests found that applying one metric tonne of the stuff to fields could absorb up to 300 kilograms of carbon dioxide. Geologist Minnick Rosing from the University of Copenhagen led the research team. But the good thing is also that as the sa- at the same time as this makes the plant grow better, it also takes CO2 out of the air. So it could also, uh, in this agricultural practice, it could also have a negative carbon uh, emission. So that means that it could also, as a side benefit, um, strip some CO2 out of the atmosphere. And that is, of course, a benefit in the climate we have today. Researchers in Ghana saw huge yield increases in maize after using this rock flour to offset the effects of rain and heat on poor farmland. Meanwhile, in Denmark, scientists at Carlsberg also saw barley yields increase by 30% when 25 tonnes of glacial rock were added to fields. 
Pai Rosadopedis is a senior scientist at Carlsberg Research Lab. And it's a more, you can say, more clean product compared to a very processed, inorganic phosphorus fertilization strategy, where this could be a more directly from nature, sort of say, um, where you need less, less processing and thereby less, less impact on the nature. With such positive results, the Danish government hopes that this miracle rock can one day bring much-needed revenue as an alternative to dirtier forms of mining. Throughout the ages, the uh, snap of a finger has been used by people to communicate. It was first depicted in ancient Greek art around 300 BC, and it's traditionally been used to accent flamenco dancing, and even today, it's the same snapping of a finger that initiated evil forces for the villain Thanos in Marvel's Last Avengers movie. And it was Thanos's mighty snap that inspired a group of researchers from the Georgia Institute of Technology to study the physics of a finger snap and determine how friction plays a critical role. The research was led by Assistant Professor Saad Bamler from the School of Chemical and Biomolecular Engineering. So my lab explores curiosity driven science, and in that realm we are also interested in ultra-fast movements in nature. So one Friday evening, uh, my students and I had just come back uh, after watching the Avengers movie. Thanos, you know, with his infinity gauntlet, snaps his finger. And we got into this heated debate trying to understand if he could actually snap or not. And this is how this whole thing got started because we want to kind of figure out why is it and what are the key ingredients required to kind of snap our fingers. And through their investigations, Saad and his team discovered that snapping your finger is one of the fastest movements humans can actually generate. Previously, people had analyzed professional baseball players that were throwing these baseballs at angular accelerations of hundreds of thousands of degrees per second square, and that was considered one of the fastest motions that the human body could do. When we pulled the data, we were shocked because we realized that the fingers are moving at angular accelerations of a million degrees per second square in about seven milliseconds. So to the best of our knowledge, for spining was this is a really, really fast motion, happens in seven milliseconds. But the second more interesting finding here is what are the kind of key ingredients that allow you to snap our fingers? And really the central role we figured out is the skin friction and the compressibility of our finger pads that kind of mediates and enables us to snap. If you disrupt it, either through lubrication or through putting friction pads or metallic thimbles to kind of replicate the infinity gauntlet might be, we realize that it's just not possible to snap and really it's these compressible finger pads that allow us humans to snap our fingers. Opening up doors to appreciate the system as we think about synthetic grippers and prosthetics to kind of appreciate the nuances uh, of these interfaces. Just an example of curiosity driven science, finding kind of marvelous insights in something that's right in front of our eyes. Still to come on the Sunday 7, instead of a bone, researchers are now giving dogs a phone and we talk to a researcher about lobster sentience right after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places. Forget fetching sticks and chewing bones, that's so 2020. Today's dogs have much more exciting options when it comes to hobbies, including video calling their owners. And just, who let the dogs online? That will be dog phone inventor Ileana Hersky-Douglas, a lecturer and assistant professor in animal-computer interaction at the University of Glasgow. And before you ask, no, the dog phone doesn't look anything like a human phone. So it's just a soft, squishy ball on the outside. And then um, you can open it up on the back and then inside it just has a um, tennis ball device and it just has some technology inside of it. When Ileana's pup, Zach, moves the ball, it triggers the nearby dog height laptop to ring. Ileana would be on the other end and the two would end up face-to-face with audio and video during the 16-day experiment. Well, by the end of it, he was ringing me about five times a day. Um, by, by the end, uh, it did get, sometimes it was a bit annoying when he would ring me back to back. But when he didn't call... He wouldn't ring me through the day and I'd be thinking, oh, he usually rings me at this time. I mean, we don't really know why a dog would use this sort of technology, you know. Um, we give a lot of technology to dogs, so we have things like collars that track them or games they play in their house. But often dogs don't really have any choices in this technology, when to use it or um, what it looks like. These are often buttons which dogs aren't usually typically you know, used to pressing. And so I thought that um, if we're having all these video callers as we go back to work, you know, for uh, us to video call our dogs, really our dogs should be able to video call us back. Um, and so I started to look at how do we create these video callers and what would it look like really from more of a dog's perspective. Tucked away in the Finnish forests, a biotechnology company thinks trees can help sustainability in Europe to become deep-rooted. Researchers at startup MetGen are mixing enzymes and biomolecules from wooden bark to replace raw oil-based materials. The main application right now for us is a shield, which improves paper strength and water resistance, and uh, also resins for, for example, gluing uh, plywood together. And uh, then we have uh, ligne polyols, which is a raw material to producing insulation material for construction. That was Tony Gronroos, the company's technology director. Another solution aims to replace the petrochemical-based coating that's currently used in cardboard packaging. A sophisticated process converts the researcher's wood-based formula into a coating for paper surfaces. These coated surfaces are then tested to check their strength and water resistance. Nicknamed the Friendly Enzyme Company, Lily Savannah is an innovation manager at MetGen and she explains the main advantages of this product. The main advantages of this product is it is recyclable, it is biodegradable, it is compostable and it replaces all the fossil-based chemistries which is now as of now goes to the landfill and it is not non-biodegradable. The technology has just been named overall winner of the 2021 Innovation Radar Prize, a prize supported by the European Commission as a way to help innovators get onto the market. And according to Chief Operating Officer Matty Heikiela, they're almost there. 
technology is ready for industrialization. We have gone through the, uh, the technology development and the engineering. We have come up with specific products with offtake. So the next thing really is to build plants, to scale it up and get it on the market. into a kitchen and saw a chicken being boiled alive, you'd be absolutely horrified. Oh! Yeah, but this is how millions of lobsters, crabs and other sea creatures meet their fate every year. However, following a review commissioned by the UK government, that could all soon come to an end. The report by experts at LSC looked at 300 scientific studies to evaluate evidence of sentience in these invertebrates. They concluded that cephalopods, octopuses, squid and cuttlefish, and decapods, crabs, lobsters and crayfish, should be treated as sentient beings, meaning they're capable of experiencing pain or suffering. This means they'll be given protection in the UK under new animal welfare laws. Dr Jonathan Birch led this research and we caught up with him to find out how scientists came to this conclusion and what it means for animal welfare. First up Jonathan, how do you measure sentience in these kind of animals? We set out a list of criteria in our report. Some of them are about the brain, the neurological criteria. Is the brain complex enough? Is it capable of sophisticated learning and memory? Some of the criteria are behavioural. So does the animal respond to injury and threat in the way that a human would? For example, does it develop lasting aversions to places where it's been injured and lasting preferences for places where it's had access to painkillers or anaesthetics? It's about putting a case together from evidence that is partly behavioural and partly neurological. And in all of the groups of animals we looked at, we assessed that the balance of evidence tilted towards sentience, that these animals are more likely to be capable of feeling than not. Hang on, these creatures, especially octopuses, have been known to be incredibly intelligent for ages. How come it's only now we've come to believe they feel pain? I think scientists have believed this for a long time, on the whole. In fact, octopuses have been protected in science in the UK since 1993. So they've always been protected in labs for that time, but never outside of labs. And to me, that's quite a significant inconsistency. And it's time to correct that inconsistency by protecting them outside labs as well. Boiling lobsters alive has long been an accepted way of killing them, which seems pretty inhumane to me. What does the report say about this? In our report, we recommend against simply dropping crabs or lobsters into boiling water because we reviewed evidence that suggests the animal's nervous system continues responding for two to three minutes. So it's in there alive for two to three minutes. Now that's relatively recent evidence. So perhaps in the past, people could tell themselves that the animal died very quickly or became insensible very quickly. And now there's evidence to suggest that's simply not true. And so we recommend more humane methods that involve killing the animal quickly before it goes in the water. Or more humane than simply dropping the animal into boiling water is killing it properly with a knife beforehand. Now there's specialist techniques for killing crabs and lobsters. It's not something you can improvise, it's something that requires educating yourself and ideally requires training. But these specialist techniques that a lot of trained chefs actually have 
can kill the animal in 10 seconds at the absolute most, which is not ideal, but it's much better than two to three minutes. I think, importantly, the UK shellfish industry can actually benefit from improved welfare regulation in this area. Producers benefit from having serious, enforceable welfare standards because consumers can feel reassured that they're getting a high welfare product, which is what consumers want. And producers can feel reassured that their standards are not being undercut by rivals with lower welfare standards. So I think better regulation in this area would be win-win. It would be a win for the animals and a win for the industry as well. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced and published by Daft Doris.